Welcome to episode 49 of Battle Rhythm, a Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Flatke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we let our feature interview do most of the talking. It is with Deputy Minister of the Department of National Defense, Jody Thomas, and the Acting Chief of the Defense Staff, Lieutenant General Wayne Eyre. Thank you for listening. So, Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Steve. I'm spending a lot of time in my garden, sneezing mostly, but defending our vegetable garden from uh, neighborhood rabbits and squirrels, despite seasonal allergies. And you, Steve, are you spending any time in your in your garden? I don't garden. I did do some yard work uh, for the first time in a few weeks. And the big the big outdoor story for me was that a, a bee made a suicide uh, bombing effort while I was biking uh, last week. So I had my first uh, bee sting. And now I have a bee stung lip. I know people pay for that kind of treatment. I, it's not very proportionate, so I would need more bees. And I don't really want more bees. Uh, that, that's, that's the big news in the home front here. Uh, we had a pretty exciting week last week. We interviewed uh, the Deputy Minister of, of Defense, Jody Thomas, and the Acting Chief of Defense Staff, Lieutenant General Wayne Eyre. Uh, and that was last Tuesday. And stuff has happened since then. So I thought we should talk a little bit about what's happened to, since then and then talk a little bit about the interview. And then we're just gonna go to the interview because it's a long it's a long segment. And I think people will be more interested in hearing them talk than us riffing about our Israel and Palestine or other issues that are, are hot this week. How's that sound to you? Sounds good to me. So the big news that happened uh, on Friday was that Major General Benny Fortin was suspended from the role of uh, leading the vaccine rollout uh, because of allegations about behavior that happened apparently during his time at the Royal Military College in Quebec. Given what little we know about this, what are your reactions, Steph? Yeah, I, I was uh, so excited last week to unveil our interview with the Deputy Minister and the Acting Chief of Defense Staff, and then late in the day on Friday, new sexual misconduct allegations surfaced in the news, and this time you're right with uh, Major General Danny Fortin, mm -hmm. and uh, Fortin is really a highly regarded member of the force, and I remember he once told CBC that sexual misconduct is completely unacceptable and that members of the military on the battlefield should feel safe, that the person next to them has their back and that this should be the same standard at home. So to see these allegations now, it, you know, disheartening once again to find one more military leader to be the target of allegations. And, you know, while this is going on, I think there are broader questions for our own ongoing discussion about this on, on the podcast, which is the, the various levels of allegations. And then how does that impact decision-making then for whether those leaders are removed from their post or whether some kind of rehabilitation is possible. And I think, of course, there's various considerations that play into the decision-making. It's hard for us to really weigh in without having all of the information, even the information that we've had with regards to Fortin are quite, it's, it's scattered information. We don't have the full picture and, and there hasn't been a lot of transparency about that case. But certainly the seniority of the individual matters a lot. You know, if, if you've reached the post of, of a general officer position, you're obviously a role model for the entire force and your judgment matters a great deal. You know, it, it will matter for making decisions about people's lives, quite literally. And so that matters, the, the actual post you're occupying. Uh, so I think one thing that struck us from the allegations against the uh, former chief of military personnel is that, or the, the, the former CDS uh, or the retired CDS, is that when you're sort of, you're, you're representing efforts to eradicate sexual misconduct or representing efforts to improve diversity and gender integration in the force. And then there are allegations against you. It, it undermines the whole credibility of the effort in addition to being you know, allegations worth investigating in their own right. So there are several considerations and I've been thinking a lot about this because 
we're either going to see, you know, a mass exodus of, of all military leaders, or we're going to see maybe, you know, a more nuanced approach over time about how to handle different types of allegations. But since we're just talking about general officers so far on, on this podcast and allegations against them, one other thing that's really striking is that everyone who steps aside seems to be replaced by a female general officer. So it goes back to I think something you were saying a couple of weeks ago about, you know, putting women in positions to sort of clean up the mess and what's left behind by general officers who uh, are, you know, disgraced by uh, allegations of sexual misconduct and assault. Uh, let's not f- forget that there are also allegations of sexual uh, assault. And that was the case with Admiral Edmondson. In any case, complex issue and certainly is something that is is a preoccupation in the day-to-day work of the deputy minister and the acting chief of defense staff. What have you been thinking about over the weekend, Steve? I know this came on late Friday and we exchanged a few emails about this. We said we were going to talk about it on the podcast, but what were your, your initial reactions to the news breaking? I guess my first thought is that if this is an incident that happened when, when Fortin was in the Royal Military College in Quebec, or in, in similarly for other officers who are at the Royal Military College in, in Kingston. This is part of a systemic problem. And so, as you alluded to, this might mean that we have to remove every office of a certain generation, but I don't think the hazing stopped back in 1990 or 1991. And so the question then is, how severe were these this mis- misconduct? And I think the answer is going to be to this process is we have to give those who are doing the investigating, those who are doing the reshaping of the culture of the Canadian Armed Forces is some discretion. So that way, if somebody does something stupid, but is not really deliberately harmful, I think that's something different than people doing things that are, are harmful. And so I think we could draw lines. And as, as you suggested, it also depends on your role, that Fortin is, you know, in, in rolling out the vaccine has to take issues of gender and, and, and uh, other things into account for how the vaccine is, is distributed, but it's not quite the same as being head of personnel where you're seen as enforcing Operation Honor and the successor program. So I, I think that we have to match what is the allegation and what, what people are found to be uh, responsible for in the past and what their responsibility are today. And that can lead to you know, nuanced decisions as opposed to just blanket all or nothing. So that's I think that's something we have to be thinking about. And these are hard, are hard decisions. Uh, from the news story, it's, it does seem to be clear that this was something that was revealed a, a couple months ago and then then and Thomas and Air have been pursuing it since then. And, and I think they're, from the reporting, the strategy is that they're, they're going to investigate everything. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. Now, what do you do? Investigation is one step. And then the next step is what do you do about it? And right now that's being left up to, I guess, Air and Thomas. And it's unfortunate we don't have the chance to follow up on the interview and, and ask them about these situations. Like, okay, who's going to be making these decisions about what happens to these people? Uh, yeah, obviously, with Vance, the, the decision's obvious. He's he's been uh, you know, he's no longer in the military, so they can do something, but it's it's not really all that meaningful at this point. I wrote an op-ed last week that uh, Edmund McDonald, I think, is finished as as CDS, and that the government should move on from that because I think he's too tainted, no matter what happens. Because again, the the, the top person in the, in the in the military should be beyond reproach, and that's no longer going to be the case. But for these other cases, I think that we need to figure this out. And I think that will be part of developing an independent process outside the chain of command where it's the job of somebody else besides the chief of defense staff and somebody besides the deputy minister who's not only investigating these situations, but trying to figure out what are the appropriate measures. And it should be designed to fit individuals and not whole blanket, you know, everybody who does X is gone. Everybody who does Y is, is, is whatever. I think there, there's got to be some case-by-caseness about this. And so that's something that they have to figure out. Hmm. And to be fair, I, you know, given what Aaron Thomas said in the interview, I, I feel a little bit more optimistic about how things are going now than I did in the past. I think as you'll see, as people will see or hear when they listen to the, to the interview, I think that, you know, that it's very clear they're taking this quite seriously. And what were your highlights from the interview when you think back on that almost hour-long conversation? Are there particular moments that stand out in your mind? Well, one thing that was striking was that Jody Thomas was was pointing out that it's not just the CAF side of the house, that there are problems in, in the D&D side of the house that they work on. I think one of the highlights of the interview was when Jody Thomas addressed how some of her staff approached her and said, you know, there's these things that you're not taking as seriously as you should. And, and this was particularly in a, in a discussion about race and the, the condition of Black Canadians in the 
uh, Canadian Armed Forces. So I thought that was a particularly striking moment. I think when we asked about why the Deschamps report hadn't been implemented and Jody Thomas's response to that, I thought that was particularly uh, striking. And I think that's something that we haven't really heard is her stance on these issues. We've heard her testify in parliament, but we haven't really heard her voice on on trying to understand the past five years. And so we get glimpses of that here. And I think that's really a highlight. What were some of the highlights for you? I really appreciated the opportunity to chat more informally with them because we should never lose sight of the fact that leaders are people too, with personal lives and family lives. And when things are hard at work, it affects them as individuals. And what they do is not easy. Their work is stressful, complicated, and really it never pleases everyone. So it's nice to just have a lot of time to talk about various issues. We still, I think, raised important questions about sexual misconduct, about the CAF's operational tempo, both at home and abroad, and the Canadian military's contributions to NATO and other international efforts. But it's a, it's a nice change of pace from what we're used to seeing, which is, you know, prepared statements in the news and press releases and updates from, from public affairs. So it's nice to have a conversation about the issues, but also having a personal touch to it and having a more relaxed atmosphere for these discussions to happen. And it's also a nice change of pace to have General Air pretty much replace you for the r segment. <laughs> to be fair, you did ask him what he was reading these days and he dove right in. So very excited about that too. It's uh, always nice to learn about what is on people's uh, nightstands and what's influencing their, their thinking and so on. Yeah, I did have one regret, which is that I've been meaning to ask the general air about the warrior culture, that this emphasis on everybody in the force being warriors and how that has, it's a loaded kind of concept that it tends to be gendered and also exclusive. And I didn't ask him because the interview wasn't really going that direction. And since then, I found out from a variety of folks that, that it actually, Lieutenant General Air is trying to downplay that that identity, that that notion. So he's actually doing something that that I wanted to ask about. Do you have any missed opportunities from the conversation, or or did you feel that we got everything out that we wanted to ask, or did we, we need another an hour and a half to really get out what we wanted to ask about? No, I think we covered a lot of ground, and you know we had discussions prior to the interview on what to prioritize because uh, obviously we don't have unlimited time with them. They're busy people. That question about Integration of different subgroups within the defense team is, is an important one. And that was on my mind because of the total defense workshop we held a couple of weeks ago, which you attended, where you look at different subgroups and different subcultures and you think through the challenges and opportunities of, of integrating these various subgroups so that they can all contribute optimally to uh, national defense. And here it's reg force, it's reservists, it's defense civilians and defense contractors. And so when you say, you know, the war your culture has a gendered image, I think it plays out for sure when it comes to gender. It plays out in all kinds of different ways because there's always these, these hierarchies of you know who's most valuable to the to the organization. And ultimately these types of hierarchies, you know, create uh, integration problems between different subgroups, whether those subgroups are defined by identity or professional affiliation. So I think we barely scratched the surface on that, but I think this is a much bigger challenge for the defense team, for you know the Canadian Armed Forces and the defense civilians within the organization, also the reservists. How do you leverage this moment of culture change to really improve conditions for everyone so that there is deeper integration on all of those levels? And by looking at sexual misconduct as you know the main area of focus and disproportionately affecting women, I think you were you know, you're looking at the problem through a straw, because as you said, this is a cultural problem. And there's such a great opportunity here to seize, you know, the moment and, and, and implement far reaching change that can really benefit everyone in the organization, wherever they sit. So that part of the conversation I could have spent more time on and, and uh, would have had lots of follow-up questions, but that's what was on, on my mind. And of course, uh, with the limited time that, that we have, I understand the choices that we made in terms of what to prioritize. I'm quite satisfied ultimately with how this went. Well, we've talked enough. I wish you get to the interview so that way folks can uh, hear what the deputy minister and the acting chief of head staff said. In fact, and one of the questions I asked was about that whole acting label which is something that has been on my mind lately. So let's get to it. Uh, thanks again, Steph, for helping to make this possible. And good luck in the next two weeks as you continue to homeschool your children. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. And take good care of yourself. And uh, we'll talk soon.
today we are welcoming two special guests to the podcast. First, Jody Thomas, who has been serving as Deputy Minister of the Department of National Defense since 2017. Before becoming Deputy Minister, she held several senior level positions, including as Senior Associate Deputy Minister for DND and Commissioner of the Coast Guard. We also have Lieutenant General Wayne Eyre, the Acting Chief of the Defense Staff. Before being Acting CDS, he was the Commander of the Army. He spent a bit of time as Commander of Military Personnel Command right before becoming Commander of the Army and after serving as Deputy Commander of United Nations Command in Korea. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for being on Battle Rhythm. I can imagine it's a particularly busy time for both of you, and today we'll be keeping things rather informal and conversational. You're both familiar with our podcast, so we'll start off by asking you one of our favorite questions. What's your Battle Rhythm like right now? So Steph and Steve, first of all, uh, thank you for the invitation. As I mentioned early on, before you started recording, I am a fan of your podcast and thank you for doing this. You know, the battle rhythm, especially over the, uh, the last two months since I've been put into to this position as acting CDS has been uh, pretty crazy. You know, normal CDS transition is anywhere from five weeks to you know, sometimes uh, three months. So getting those handover briefings, the transition briefings while dealing with the issues at hand has been a challenge to establish a good battle rhythm. But that being said, you know, establishing a routine right from the get-go is, for me, was was a priority. I think we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, methods of dealing with uh, with stress and the like. But a routine is very important. What has changed from pre-pandemic is travel. We have not been doing nearly as much travel as would normally be the case in our battle rhythm and consequently much more time using virtual means using teams and zoom for virtual town halls and reaching out and having that breadth of ability to contact people around the world and bring them in but you don't have the same depth of the interaction no it's a lot of time on zoom there's no doubt i think that and again i will also echo wayne's words of thank you i'm a listener as well and i know i've been trying to do this for a while and i appreciate that you try to get issues on the table in an informal manner where people don't feel they're under the gun it's really very nice for us to be able to talk in this manner. I think we've been at the current pace since December 2019, Soleimani assassination led into the downing of the Ukrainian flight, and then of course COVID hit. And we have been seven days a week, really since December 2019. For us, not as many weekends recently, which is a nice break. General Air and I have decided that we would try and work at home on Fridays, because we've been in the office every single day, just because of the systems we work on, the need for secure rooms. So we try to have no secure meetings on Fridays. And so I've now had three Fridays at home for the first time uh, since everybody started working at home. It's been really hard on our teams, that mix between not wanting to be at home and the desire to be in the office and the isolation of being at home. So there's been a lot to manage, but our pace has only picked up as a result of COVID and all the deployments that are resulting from COVID as well as everything else going on in the world. It's just been more intense. And I think, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces and the department have performed admirably through it. So that means your Friday tweets that you send out, those are at home and nobody is over your shoulder making sure that, that you do it right? Oh, I have very, very smart people who manage how I do things and what I say. Uh, <laughs> as I said earlier, if left to my own devices, I, I could be in some trouble. So. Well, one of the things that's, that's confused me and I think confuses the Canadian public a little bit is the division of labor between the two of you because... The, I guess the metaphor that came to mind is that, and I know it's not right, but the CDS is the chief operating officer of the military. And I guess the deputy minister is the, not the CFO and not the CEO, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out the right equivalent. And so I'm curious as to what is the division of labor between the two of you? And, and I know there's shared turf. So how do you manage the shared turf issue since you come at it with different perspectives? So, you know, the National Defense Act is pretty clear about what the division of labor is. But in practice, it is really difficult to have hard lines. And I think that the institution runs at its best when there is continual and constant dialogue between the two towers. And everybody's heard the stories about when the North and South Tower don't get along and when they're at war, and that is dysfunctional. So where we share public affairs, policy, IMIT, we have some joint responsibilities there. And for me to set the budget without consultation, input, and agreement for the most part with the chief would be you know, just a failure in decision-making. And so I'm responsible for the budget. He's very 
implicated. I have views on operations, not the tactics, the strategy and the policy cover for it. And so operational meetings still require the deputy to ensure that policy cover is there and that we don't need to go to the center to confirm any action that's going to be taken. Not again at the tactical level, much more at the strategic level. So I think that the National Defense Act uh, set things in stone, but in fact, the reality is very, very gray and blurred between the two of us. And I think it should be. We should be each other's principal advisors in a lot of ways. And so my understanding is still developing, I'm just over two months into this. And as Jody said, the NDA is clear, but leaves a lot of room for interpretation. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about cooperation in producing that operational capability and delivering on missions for Canada, Canadians and Canadian interests. And to do that, uh, we absolutely have to cooperate. Now, there's going to be a healthy tension, a healthy tension between military capability and policy, between military operations and policy, uh, between military requirements and acquisition slash budgeting. But free and open communication and being mutually supporting, in my view, is the way to get through this and, and to make sure that you understand perspectives, constraints, and, and opportunities, quite frankly. And I think that it's important for our teams to see intellectual challenge and differences and working through problems together to get to a conclusion. It may not be the conclusion that either of us wants as a perfect outcome, but it is a generally a compromise that works, is legal, is effective, delivers the outcome that's required. And our teams need to see that happening. I think it's really important. It has to be respectful and it has to be honest and has to be ethical, but seeing intellectual differences and challenging each other, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And I'm curious, two things, given your relatively new status, is what is the biggest surprise uh, of the past couple months about working with the, with the deputy minister and working with the DND from the chair of, of CDS as opposed to from the chair of chief of the army? How delightful she is. <laughs> <laughs> well, surprises, you know, just on that subject, I tend to get surprised uh, almost every day uh, with, uh, with things coming in, you know, learning something new uh, every day, you know, certainly intellectually uh, stimulating while, uh, while stressful at the same time. But in terms of the, uh, the biggest surprises, you know, I think back to my own professional military education and, and things I wish I had learned more about or would better prepare me for this post. You know, it's understanding of parliament committees, understanding of the role of various uh, deputy minister committees, uh, who does what, that division of responsibilities, part of the machinery of government piece. So I, I think from that perspective, that was my uh, greatest shortfall in professional development coming into uh, this position. And the other question that comes out of this is your acting CDS. How do you feel that modifier of your title is affecting what you're doing now and sort of the impact that or the perception other people have of, of you doing your job you know you don't know how long you're going to be around and that's true for any cds but it's particularly true for you right now yeah and there is there is uncertainty that goes with that but got to set that uncertainty aside and make decisions as if i own them and i do own them uh, and so to drive on with the best interests of the institution best interests of the the country at heart for however long i'm in this uh, this position that's the only way you can do it if i could jump in i think that uh, wayne is absolutely owned the job and the decisions and the responsibility and the accountability and i think he's been a really courageous leader in his first couple of months thanks jody you're very welcome in the past few months, you've both been very visible in the media. And Jody, before you, you've had a pretty visible media presence compared to, I think, your predecessors. And you've had your Friday tweets. But the, the challenge is that the CAF has a reputation for not being transparent. I was struck, I guess it was about 10 years ago now, I was interviewing somebody in the parliament and they said that they wanted to know something about the CAF. They call the Pentagon. And that, that was a strange thing to hear because the last I heard, the Pentagon was in Washington, D.C. And so I'm curious as to uh, whether there's a cultural problem about either the media and how it covers the CAF, or is there a, a dynamic within the CAF that makes it hard to get information about it? Do you get a sense that the CAF is well understood and, and what may be blocking how well the CAF and DND are understood? So that's a really big question. Obviously, we're accountable to Canadians. We do need to be transparent. There's been a lot of discussion about our access to information group who have really taken a lot of beating for their ability to deliver. So we've increased the number of people there and their output is better. I would say that something like access to information is the first thing cut whenever there's reductions to budget in this hmm. place. And in that they're responsible for the application of a law that can't happen during the pandemic when everybody went home one of the first groups we brought back was the access group because we have to comply with a law 
and that law isn't well understood. And so that's a bit of a problem. I think that there's the constant balance between operational security and transparency that we often fall on the wrong side of. And so we do go too heavily to the operational security side of issues rather than disclosure. At the same time, Sometimes I think that there is a desire for us to tell the media things before they've even happened. Like we've not taken a decision. We don't know yet, so we can't tell you we're not being secretive. We do spend a lot of time, probably too much time, crafting lines rather than answering questions. And that comes from the top. I own that, not our media team, because we have a great public affairs team. Like they're the best in town. So our desire to craft lines rather than respond, I think is something that we really need to work on. And you know, the, the journalists who cover defense, it is a small group. <laughs> they have views. They absolutely should have views. And free and open media is just a cornerstone of democracy, just like having a an armed forces is a cornerstone of democracy. I think we need to work on our relationships a little bit. We haven't done as much as we could. And my personal presence in terms of being my Twitter, etc. I realized that there was a lot of communication with the Canadian Armed Forces and not much with the 26,000 civil servants, public servants who work in this department supporting Canadian Armed Forces every day, side by side, often in the field, not just here in NDHQ or bases and wings. And the work that's done in bases and wings is so critical to keeping the Canadian Armed Forces functioning, but I wasn't communicating with them well enough. And decided I was going to. It's had a range of success. Uh, I'm not sure it's always hit the mark, but we're working hard at it. And I appreciate the fact that people want us to be more open and talk to them. And so just to add to that, you know, I personally have a bias towards uh, transparency. And I think we need to be more proactive in putting information out. We have to balance that against the re very real threat that adversaries out there are data mining on us, protecting privacy uh, in accordance with the laws, uh, protecting a cabinet confidence. The timing is important because if you if, if draft documents, if pre-decisional documents are going out and they're seen as this is the department's position, well, that could very quickly uh, stifle creativity and, and staff initiative. And so there's a there's a healthy tension there uh, between you know what needs to be protected and what's in the public interest. But going back to the second part of your question on is the CAF well understood by the Canadian public, I would say no. We have to do a much better job of informing the public as to what we're about. And from my perspective, one of the best ways of doing that is at the grassroots level. So local bases, wings, units, reaching out, talking to local communities. We just can't communicate from within the Ottawa bubble here and expect our population across this country to better understand what we're about. It's the local neighbors who wear uniforms that'll be most relevant to them and provide the best perspective, from my perspective. Jody and Wayne, I want to circle back to something you said at the very outset. It relates to the frenetic pace of your battle rhythm, which is largely dictated by events. And COVID-19 has certainly imposed a higher operational tempo domestically over the past year. There's no doubt about that. Yet the CAF continues to meet its international commitments through NATO, the UN, coalition operations, really all over the world. So my question to you is, has this balance between domestic and international activities changed significantly? And maybe what adjustments might be needed in terms of training schedules and other commitments to build in room for increased domestic operations? Steph, there's a, a lot in that question or questions. And early on in this position, I realized we need to provide some focus to the armed forces as we, as we stabilize the institution, given the body blows we've been through. And putting operations at the top was pretty critical. And so I don't know if you've seen it or not, I put out a focus area document to inform the CAF. These are the four areas we're going to be focused on. People up front with the culture change, that's, that's absolutely necessary. Operations, uh, especially in the context of the pandemic as we uh, as we protect Canadians here at, at home. But at the same time, uh, we've got uh, members of the CAF in harm's way around the world, rebuilding our readiness, which has suffered over the course of the pandemic, and then continuing to modernize capabilities because we can't uh, completely mortgage the future as we deal with the present. Uh, in, in fact, we've got to keep our eye on that horizon to make sure that, that tomorrow's uh, armed forces are, are ready for those challenges. So in all of those, I see our biggest challenge is something I call called change capacity. Uh, it's the ability to have the, uh, the staff in place who've got the right skills, experience, and intellectual capacity 
to implement that change. And so we've got to be very draconian in setting priorities in each of those four areas and, and so that we can focus that very limited change capacity on what is truly important. This is a strategic management challenge of, of pretty significant proportions. We're in the process right now of putting together a CAF reconstitution plan. You know, understanding that over the course of the last fiscal year, we have shrunk by about 2,300 in the regular force and probably about the same on the reserve force. So this is going to take several years to get out of this. At a time when we're supposed to be growing, we've actually shrunk. And so energizing the personnel production pipeline to get new people in the door, to continue with our training at the right levels, to, to finding a better balance in, in our training, what we do, to optimizing what we have overseas in, in terms of the force structure to continue to deliver the strategic effect that the, uh, the government expects. And at the same time, making sure we've got the right capacity in things like continental defense, in things like uh, delivering on the SSE capabilities that uh, that our policy gives us. So there's a lot to do, and we, we can unpack that more in, in more detail if you wish. I think the, uh, the one thing I would add to the domestic efforts is what Canadians see and what they don't see. So they saw soldiers in long-term care facilities doing extraordinary work and saving lives in really difficult situations. And that's very emotional for Canadians and it caused and created a lot of pride. As much pride should be from those in the background that we seconded to PHAC, that we seconded to Health Canada, that are working with provincial authorities doing planning and logistics and procurement. We had officers and soldiers deployed across the country doing things nobody saw that I think as we go forward, we're going to have to understand in Canada how to do that kind of logistical work, how resilience in terms of supply chains are going to function. And I think we can add some value value there, but it, Canadians haven't seen all those people in the background in back rooms doing big, broad planning efforts, doing PPE distribution across the country when it came in in the early days of the pandemic when that was a concern. And so those people uh, haven't gotten the attention, but you know they've done some extraordinary work. And just to build on that, as we go forward, it's clear that we are being called upon more frequently for, for domestic operations, whether it's uh, due to climate change or better appreciation of, of what we bring. And so I think this needs to, we need a national discussion as to the role of the armed forces in national emergencies. Are we a truly a force of last resort or are we a force of first choice, because this is going to become increasingly important as we get called upon more and more. And we've got to take this consideration into our future force structure as well. As we take a look at the, the threat environment, it demands more high-tech capabilities, more precision. But at the same time, many of the emergencies that we're called upon to respond to here in Canada calls upon a degree of mass. And what we provide in many of these cases are a formed body of labor that is self-deploying, self-sustaining, has its own inherent command and control, is discipline. And, and so there's an inherent tension between those two that we need to reconcile. So it's going to be uh, manifested in what our geographic laydown is, future use of the reserve force, tremendous untapped potential there, and, and making sure that we have versatility in our forces built in as, a, uh, as an attribute. Can I just break in for one second? One of the things that I've heard from, we've heard from, from people who've been doing this kind of work is that the domestic operations dynamics are different from international dynamics, that when soldiers and sailors and aviators go abroad, there's sort of a pride to be placed in that. And there's benefits that come along with it, that they have greater um, leave opportunities and that when people do stuff domestically, they have shorter leaves and it's seen as, as a distraction from the day job. And so we're going to get into cultural change with staff next question, which I just stepped on. But it seems to me that one thing that needs to be done in this increased er this era of increased operations is you're going to have to change the incentives and the benefits for soldiers and sailors and aviators when they're operating in Canada and change the attitude so that way it's not seen as, as a secondary thing. I know it's always been one of the top four priorities of every defense uh, review going back, but it hasn't really been attitudinally the same as as these other things. So have you been thinking about changing the benefits and those kinds of aspects and changing the training cycles so that way there's more space for the annual spring floods and whatever else is semi-predictable? 
So in terms of training schedules, we, we've already done that to a, a certain extent to make sure that each geographic area of Canada is covered off by rapid response forces. So we don't have everything training at the same time in the same location to retain that flexibility. But you're absolutely right. Our focus traditionally has been on expeditionary operations. But as the world becomes smaller, as our splendid isolation here in Canada becomes much less so, you know, changing our mindset to, to looking at Canada as a theater of operations is going to be an absolute necessity as, as part of uh, our work on continental defense. As a necessary follow-on to that is people piece, which you uh, you allude to, the benefits and, and everything that goes along with that. We've also got to be very careful. We've got other elements of Canadian society, first responders and the like, who are also undertaking very similar tasks that we've got to make sure that there is some harmony there, if you will. Yeah, I think that uh, it's very clear domestic operations have taken a precedence in the last three years that nobody would have imagined. Going back to the really bad floods that occurred here in Ottawa th three years ago, we had as many people deployed in Canada that spring as we did overseas. And we had a lot of people deployed overseas at that point in time. And so the size of the forces, the readiness of the forces, the ready troops available, the use of reserves all need to be considered. And with that, the compensation, the benefits, et cetera. Absolutely. Sleeping in tents at uh, Shirley's Bay probably was not the best experience for a lot of those reservists who had to come and help with the Ottawa River floods. Wayne, you mentioned culture change, so I, I do welcome the opportunity to unpack that, to use your words. A series of sexual misconduct allegations came to light recently, which led to quite a bit of leadership turnover and once again, a huge spotlight on the CAF and its culture. Where are you now when it comes to the process of change? So you, you will have seen the announcements from about 10 days ago, announcing a number of, of initiatives. I see us changing in the, in the midterm along two streams for an approach. You know, one is the uh, external independent comprehensive review that Madame Orbor is going to lead, which is operating on a, a timeline of a, a year to 15 months. However, we are going to be getting very frequent updates, hopefully actionable recommendations that we can wrap our arms around and get into our, our system as quickly as possible. The other is the stand-up of the Chief uh, Professional Conduct and Culture, which is, is going to help align many of our policies, many of our uh, internal stovepipes of excellence that are focused on, on this issue, and just really streamline things like reporting and, and data collection and, and the like. But I agree with the skeptics out there who say throwing new structure at a problem is not a solution, but it is part of a solution. And this is a challenge that every level of the organization has to embrace, you know, admit that uh, we have not been as successful as we needed to be. We have failed in, in keeping up our culture with the expectations of, of Canadians and our, uh, our own members. And so dealing with that culture change as a top priority is, is absolutely essential. So over the course of the, uh, the very short term, we are going to continue to do formal consultations with experts, victims, with survivors, experts inside and outside academics to better understand where we need to go. We're not experts in culture change. Many others are. Let's harvest those ideas and make a deliberate, comprehensive plan that's actually going to work. Yeah, I think the culture issue is massive. Sexual misconduct is a huge part of the issue, but it's not the only issue. I think that what we have to look at is who we are and why we've allowed this to persist. Before the misconduct allegations and situations cases came to the fore, we had a Black Lives Matter afternoon with our Black employees last summer employees and members of the forces brought about by you know my hesitancy and, and a fight with the previous cds about putting out messaging on black lives matter and i had an employee who you know she'll go down in my memoirs as one of the most courageous employees i've ever dealt with who emailed me and said your silence on this issue is deafening what's wrong with you i expect more this isn't who you normally are when you talk about employees and i was quite shocked by it and apologized and yes we need to do better we organized an afternoon with our visible minority departmental advisory group and the things we heard that afternoon were horrifying words i didn't know were said in canada let alone in the canadian armed forces the discrimination the lack of understanding of those of us who set policy about how we write it for those of us who are in the majority and don't understand what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes and what it's like to be black in canada and in the forces that was the first step of understanding we have a cultural problem and it was quite a day i was really shaken by it and we have stood up secretariat to look at systemic discrimination and racism in D&D calf. 
and they're doing really good work and the minister's panel is doing very good work. And then we fast forward to the bubbling up of the allegations on sexual misconduct. And I think it's too simple to say that this is just about a sexualized culture and I'm not being negative about that term. I think it's just deeper and broader than that. I think that women, as an example, have been integrated in the armed forces for 35 years, but they've not been included. There is still a very strong sense of who's entitled to this institution and who isn't. And I think in that entitlement, in that atmosphere, the festers behavior and eventually the anger and the violence that results in sexual assault. I think we have hidden behind words like harmful and inappropriate sexual behavior when in fact we should be talking about unacceptable behavior and criminal activity. And we don't call it that and we don't treat it that way because we dance around the words and we've tried to use phrases to describe it all. Well, we can't. Rape is rape. And it's worse when it happens in the armed forces because it's a family member essentially. If a rape occurs on a ship, the person you're relying on to save your life has harmed you. And so it's inexcusable and untenable and it has to stop. And that's easy to say. And then making it happen is something else altogether different. And so it is how we recruit, how we train, how we retain, how we promote, who we promote, the values we promote. The difference between inclusion and integration needs to be looked at because clearly there is a problem there. And we need to reward the leader who takes the risk with challenging the behavior rather than the leader who accepts the behavior because it's their boss behaving this way. And so there is a lot to look at. I think Madame Arbour will be very useful because Madame Deschamps told us what? She told us we had a deep and profound and persistent problem. And Madame Arbour is gonna help us understand why and start to begin the culture change. There is a lot of discussion right now about, well, just build an outside entity. I don't think that fixes anything because you got to understand the problem. Having an outside entity that reports to parliament, but people are still scared of reprisal fixes nothing. And so we need some advice on how to do that and how to do it so that it doesn't fail. And so how to do it so that it's not just another token action. It has deep and profound impact. And the outside entities helps with the reporting and the investigation side of things, but we fix nothing if we don't go to the prevention and the behavior and look at that as well. I don't think there's any single action that is going to make a difference. It's a totality of action and it's the totality of the team, not just the leadership team that has to look at this. So the more I look at this and our, our culture, the aspect of our culture that has to change is most profoundly is uh, the exclusionary attitude that permeates uh, many places. You know, if we take a look at operational effectiveness and, and believe that operational effectiveness is predicated on cohesion, cohesion is predicated on teams. We take a look at the makeup of our teams is changing as the face of Canada changes. And so how we build teams, how we deal with teams has to fundamentally change. We can no longer have a cookie cutter solution based on majority of what our institution has traditionally been founded upon. No, we need to take a look at our, our teammates as individuals uh, with unique backgrounds, uh, with unique developmental needs, uh, with unique skills, attributes, strengths, and weaknesses, and cater uh, to those differences and, and truly build a team in, in which every member feels welcome, feels that they truly belong, feels that they can contribute. And, and only with that will we have a true team. And that's gotta be at every level where our teammates feel that they're truly part of that team. I wanna just circle back to, to you, Jody, because you mentioned Madame Deschamps' report and Madame Arbour's work. And I wanna know if you can tell us why all recommendations from the Deschamps report weren't implemented and how you feel about the recommendations that might come out of the Arbo review and how we can improve upon the last few years. So I'd read the Deschamps report probably two or three times over the last four years that I've been here. It was directed mainly at the CAF and I was often told that my views on it weren't necessarily welcome. I've now read it about 10 times in the last two months. I think that what was done was as much as was possible without changing anything, right? No structure was really changed. The SMRC was created and uh, even its initial inception, it was very close to the Canadian Armed Forces and I think there was too much involvement. We made that as more separate. And I think that the last piece 
to fix on that front, whether it reports to the DM or outside, I actually think is irrelevant. What we need to fix there is their access to data and their ability to give direction about how things will be done to the Canadian Armed Forces. I think in totality, if you look at the Deschamps report and the recommendations, enough was done to say check, but not actually change structure, reporting, training, recruiting, discipline, justice, and that's where it failed. Madame Arbor, we're not interpreting what she says. Some of it's going to be difficult. We just received Justice Fish's first draft of his report. It's going to be difficult. Doesn't mean that it doesn't need to happen and that it won't happen. And we have to group what we can do by immediate action and then longer term activity. And some of it with legislative change could take a couple of years. That's just how legislation moves in this country. But we're not going to interpret it. We're going to implement it. So I think we have pushed back too long on an independent reporting structure. You go back to the Somalia report, that was one of the recommendations. Our, our pushback has not worked that well for us. <laughs> and so going forward, in my opinion, we absolutely need to embrace an independent reporting structure that rebuilds the confidence at all levels in the institution that, that our members can report and not fear reprisal and ensure that their, uh, their concerns are dealt with. You mentioned independent reporting, and what's interesting is this is not just a Canadian thing that I'm yeah. sure you've looked at the allies that the news in the United States the past couple of weeks has shown that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has finally admitted that prosecution of cases cannot be handled strictly within the military, that there's been resistance in the United States, there's been resistance in the UK and Australia, and the usual places that we like to think of, compare ourselves to, about having cases of sexual misconduct be handled strictly within the chain of command. I guess the, the, the question is, given what's going on elsewhere, does this mean that there will be less resistance this time around to having independent prosecution of cases of sexual misconduct within the CAF and within D&D as well? So I'll just jump in on D&D. I think that was one of the main failures of Op Honor is that the defense civilians were excluded from it. It was focused only on the Canadian Armed Forces and there's no way that anybody could see an institution this tightly connected and integrated that civilian team members are not both victims of and perpetrators of sexual inappropriate behavior and up to assault. And we've heard people talking about assault on the civilian side. And it is a massive organization. We're 130,000 people. Of course, the civilians are going to be impacted by this. And so within the bounds of the law, because the National Defense Act and Code of Service Discipline are quite different for the armed forces than our civilian team members, we will do everything we can to ensure that independence and prosecution outside the department. Absolutely. And so as we go forward with the recommendations coming in, we absolutely cannot be bound by tradition and want to keep the, the same structures and policies in place just because that's the way we've always done it. We absolutely have to embrace change and what is going to be the best for the institution to continue to, to engender that trust that is so important for cohesion. So recently you have both been engaging in a listen and learn tour together, and that will certainly inform your strategy for renewing the CAF's professional conduct and culture. So I would like to ask what you have heard and what you have learned as you've embarked on this listening tour, both while engaging with historically marginalized groups, but also with more, say, dominant groups within the CAF. So we've learned a lot. There is, you know, firstly, that what we're hearing is, is anger, is fatigue, is a sense of betrayal, but also at the same time, hope and seeing this as an opportunity to make true change. The number of initiatives that, that we're hearing, the ideas that we're hearing are, are fairly immense. You know, just to give you a, an example of, of a number of them, things like changing the duty to report to a duty to respond, to give victims more agency, to changing our leader selection models so that, that we have subordinates giving more of a say in how leaders are selected to help identify toxicity, to changing our career management system so we're not having a cookie cutter industrial age model that not everybody fits into. And the list goes on. Yeah, we've heard some pretty harrowing accounts of things that have happened to members of the Canadian Armed Forces and the department. We've heard more from the forces, you know, that's just because of the size and the nature of the work. I think that we've heard about profound determination to fix this for the next generation and profound belief still in the institution, which is remarkable considering what has happened to some people. We have heard of, from people who have been profoundly harmed by the duty to report 
all agency removed from them, all responsibility and control of their own lives. It's just gone. And they're now very publicly paying the price for that. And we have to look at that seriously. And, and General Air has committed to doing that. We've learned about the lack of accountability and the lack of leadership in some locations and in some situations. And we've learned about what women do to fit in. And they're in some cases disappointment in themselves of what they've had to do to fit in. And We've heard that it is the, of course, assault and criminal activity and rape are a scale that require outside prosecution that we shouldn't be dealing with ourselves. We're not equipped to do that. But it is, as a warrant officer said to me, it's the daily fight to be heard, to have a seat at the table, to be given the opportunity to input and participate, and that it is exhausting being a member of this department. And I will say that there are days where I find it exhausting. So if I do, what's happening out there to other people? And it goes back to what I said earlier about who's entitled to this institution and who isn't, and that has to change. And it's not rooting out one or two bad apples. It is about profound institutional change. Well, thank you for that, Joni. I think that that's really an important set of observations. And, and I, th I definitely think this learning will continue. We're still learning. The academic side of things, we're, we have our own uh, problems that we're, we're dealing with. I guess one of the challenges for the CAF and for DNB is that it's so very hierarchical. And so when we talk about the crisis, one of the things that's made the last three months distinct is it's not just about misconduct. It's about abuse of power. And I'm curious as to as to how you've been thinking about that lately, about holding everyone to the same standard or holding the folks at the top of the chain of command to a higher standard, because I think that's been really what and what's been dismaying to many people over the past couple of months, that the news of, of 2021 has been so much about not just the raw numbers, but the fact that this stuff is happening at the top of the of, of the chain of command. And so I, I guess the question is, is, is where has your thinking been going on that? I think abuse of power and abuse of authority is the very core of this, isn't it? Unfortunately, you can't know what people don't tell you. And so you have to change the institution and the environment in the institution so that people will tell you and that they can understand when something changes from consensual to non-consensual. And we need to look at our rule set. I think that, you know, having a relationship with somebody in the armed forces is not illegal, but when does it cross into abuse of power and abuse of authority? And what do you do about it once it has, once you're in deep and you're talking about very personal things that are hard to talk about, how do you deal with that? Ultimately, the standard has to be not the same for everybody. There is a higher expectation of senior leaders and we need to be held to a higher standard. There's absolutely no doubt. And I say we, because it's the same on the civilian side. Power and hierarchy and control and authority and command are all words that get blurred in this place. And we need to educate people differently and better on what the lines are and what those words all mean. Because command and control is different than authoritative leadership. And it is different than abusive authority. And it gets blurred for people. And so that's a constant educational piece that needs to happen. We need command and control and the chain of command has to matter for when important things are happening and difficult things are happening. But within that concept of chain of command, when do you cross over into abuse? When do you cross over into you know, dictatorial leadership as opposed to inclusive leadership? And everybody's got different leadership styles, but inclusive leadership has to be the expectation of us. So we've got to get much better at our leadership training and understanding power dynamics, understanding the difference between the use and the abuse of power. We've got to get much better at the human skills that are, are so necessary at all levels, the emotional intelligence, how to talk to people from different backgrounds, how to develop that understanding of various backgrounds so you have a better understanding of the individuals who make up the teams for which you're responsible. The issue of relations, relationships, is, is a very complex one as well. We have over 4,000 married service couples in the uh, the armed forces, and those relationships started somewhere. So this is, this is a very complex human problem that is overlaying on a hierarchy that uh, we've got to be very, very careful about understanding and, and what rules we put in place to be able to deal with this. Thank you. Uh, speaking of relationships, I mean, that's a, a lame segue, but one of our closest relationships is with, with NATO. I guess the question now is that we are looking at NATO and our role in NATO. And I believe there's been references to 
there being more money or more effort made in the NATO direction. I'm curious as to what you're thinking about, about what it means for more Canada in NATO, given that we're already leading the Enhanced Forward Presence mission in Latvia. So NATO, that's a bedrock of our, what I like to call competitive advantage. You know, being a member of an alliance of like-minded nations, partners that can stand up against authoritarian states around the world. You know, what this means is we can be more honest about our commitments in terms of notice to move, the, the cost of maintaining those capabilities at, uh, at a higher state of readiness. But we've also got to look at other parts of the world as well and just making sure that we are very targeted in where we put our limited engagement capacity. So Europe, absolutely important, you know, especially as we've got deployments along the front line of freedom in Latvia with Operation Reassurance in, in Ukraine, you know, although not part of NATO, but certainly supporting. But we've got to balance that with increased demands around uh, from the rest of the world, Indo-Asia Pacific, Africa, here at home and, and up in the north. There's just not as much calf to go around. Now, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, and uh, <laughs> a favorite line from Bilbo Baggins talks about having too little butter spread over too much toast. You know, at times we're, we're somewhat like that. So we have to do a targeted engagement where we have a strategic cost benefit analysis to we get the most bang for the buck for our, our deployments. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Wayne just said. Certainly the budget money, it, is a game changer for us for in terms of our ability to ensure readiness. And uh, I think that it indicates to NATO that we are serious, we are committed partners, and we will be going forward. So we are living up to that commitment. The 2% is always out there. Continental defense will move us towards the 2%. And we have you know, a little bit of seed money to start the work looking at what NORAD modernization truly is. And so that work will go on for the next year to 18 months. And when I say a little bit of seed money, <laughs> you know, I'm just talking in defense terms. It's a lot of money. So you mentioned NATO operations and in Canada's leadership role within the Alliance. Canada has also been a huge champion of the women, peace and security agenda, both within NATO and outside. And I wanted to just quickly ask specifically about the WPS CHOD network and to see where that initiative is at. So in 2017, as you, uh, as you, as you probably know, we were founding member of the, uh, the WPS CHODS network. And, and this is a great opportunity for CHODS to share and discuss strategies, experiences, uh, best practices, innovative ideas, uh, along with the implementation of the, uh, the whole women, peace and security agenda. So Canada has had the chair of this and was supposed to turn over to Bangladesh last year, been delayed because of, of COVID. We are supposed to turn it over to Bangladesh later this year. What I want to do in the shorter term, though, is take a look at how we can rebuild that momentum in terms of the, uh, the various initiatives that are out there. And to that end, I'll be getting briefed here in the, uh, the short term as to what we can do in the limited time we have left sharing this network. Excellent. We're, we're wrapping up our interview with you. And before we part ways, I do want to ask you about how to manage a very stressful situation. We alluded to the operational tempo of the CAF. We alluded to COVID-19 being a unique stressor, and we alluded to the complex feelings of this moment of cultural change for the military as an institution. So do you have any advice for the defense team on how to manage the stress? Well, I'll start off here because this is an area of particular interest. And I will say the last uh, two plus months have been the most stressful in my career. And I've been <laughs> in some pretty stressful uh, situations, especially with the continued body blows that the institution continues to take. It is, and I'll, I'll be completely honest here, it has diminished the sense of professional identity and, and sense of moral legitimacy to, to lead. But that being said, we got to move on. we got to lead the institution. And so how do you deal with that stress? Well, you... Um, first and foremost set a routine and you know for me personally it's it's daily physical activity it's monitoring sleep you know, getting the best sleep possible it is nutrition it is taking opportunities to relax i, I relax through reading and, and through physical activity there are many in this institution who are fragile because of the pandemic Fragile because of the burning the candle at both ends to deliver the operational capability that the CAF has put out. And then this most recent uh, crisis has really deeply affected our, our senior leadership. So it's one thing I've been pushing with them is, is wellness. Look after yourselves. Get the help that you, uh, you require because we need you. We need you to lead this, uh, this institution. But finding that balance and, and getting into that routine and looking after yourself is just so important. 
What are you reading? So right now I got uh, I got three books on the go. For personal pleasure, I'm uh, understanding that the movie Dune is coming out. Uh, <laughs> I, I started off with the original Dune series, and then I got into uh, Herbert the Younger. I've been reading the recent biography of Eisenhower, How Ike Led, by his, his granddaughter. And I think about some of the days of stressful decisions here, and then just think back to Ike on the uh, the day leading up to uh, to the 6th of June, 1944, and, and that pressure, and okay, let's put it in context. And uh, I guess the other one is The Lives of the Stoics by Ryan Holiday, you know, looking at the, the Greeks and Romans and, and the formation of the Stoic uh, philosophy. I'm reading whatever Wayne tells me to read <laughs> because he does have book suggestions all the time and it's really helpful. So the best thing I did during the pandemic was I bought a Peloton and it has saved my head because I do rage spin a fair amount. I'll be honest, the last six months have been the worst of my life. I lost my mother, my sister, and all of the work pressure. So it's been a lot. I am blessed by an extraordinary family, very, very patient and calm husband, and a really amazing team who have done a lot to support me through this personally and just continued to grind out work. The professionalism of the team here at D&D, my ADMs who report to me, I couldn't ask for a better team. And I have known that when I couldn't pay attention, they were for me. And so that's helped a lot. It's, it's not been easy from a COVID perspective. Everybody has had something go on in their personal life. I'm not alone and I'm not looking to uh, say that my um, world has been worse but even leaders experience personal trauma during stressful periods and it's important to recognize that and it makes you a little more empathetic with your own team i think i don't want to take credit for your, your team but your, your chief of staff was my master's student back at mcgill and uh, she um <laughs> she's a rock star let me tell you that girl that young woman will run the world one day she is uh, pretty impressive She's terrific, and I can't really take any any responsibility for how terrific she is. She was terrific when she started, and she's been terrific ever since. So I just happen to be lucky to have great students in my career. Now, thank you both for, for the advice. I think we can all use uh, better sleep, more exercise, and some tactical breathing. <laughs> and uh, Jody and Wayne, Deputy Minister General Air, let me once again thank you for joining us on Battle Rhythm. My sincere hope is that We'll be able to check back in with you in a few months, maybe, to see how all of the changes we discussed today will be implemented. In the meantime, let me wish you all the best as we continue to slowly transition out of this pandemic. We look forward to reconnecting with you in person. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. Much appreciated.